tonight's lecture is on God and evil. We're going to talk about the ontological argument. We're also going to talk about the fall of the devil. And so, without any further ado, Professor Mancha. Wow, so we're going to see how things go. Uh, like last time, you know, I'm just going to be, sometimes I'm just going to be riffing on things, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. So, if you were here last week or if you were watching online, you know, last week we got into some heady stuff, trying to unpack Anselm's uh, understanding of truth and of language. And this week we want to think bigger, right, and tackle, you know, this simple relationship between God and evil. Right, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we could probably dispense with that and do something uh, probably a bit more exciting, but uh, this is the stuff actually that I really enjoy. And if you did any of the reading, even if you didn't, right, we're getting ready to do something here. Anselm's analysis of God, it makes for some scandalous stuff. I mean, I say this because Anselm initially appears to break all the rules of engagement when it comes to discussing issues of faith. It's one thing, you know, for us as Christians to claim that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, yada, yada, yada. You know, the creed that we say, rattle off all these other conditions. And it's another for someone to come out and say this, God exists, and he exists in such a way that reason can confirm it, and it is not possible to rationally deny God's existence. But in the Proslogion, Anselm does exactly that, and he is not messing around, okay? So his argument here in the Proslogion, it's a wonderful argument, actually. It's come, it's come to be known as the ontological argument, and the word ontological comes from the word ontology, which means roughly, you know, the logic or the logos or science of being. Hence, ontology is the branch of philosophy that's concerned with the very nature of existence or being itself. Ontology is generally concerned with the question, what exists? And so if I were to ask each of you to go home and make a list, make a list for me, uh, to write your ontology, what you would write down is your list of all the things that you think exist. Yeah? It, you wouldn't finish your list, and it'd be really long. Well, Anselm's ontological argument is a curious one. He sets out to demonstrate the existence of God from what we call a priori, or pure logical self-evident principles, grounded in the very nature of existence itself, without presumably any appeal to what we call empirical premises that demand that we have any sort of understanding of sensible issues. Anselm is of the belief that any rational being can, if they think about the concept of God, if they think about what the idea of God means, that you'll just understand that God must exist. So from the very beginning here in the Proslogion, Anselm wants to make clear to his readers that our understanding of God, whatever it is, is of a being that is beyond ordinary experience. For Anselm, he defines God as the being than which none greater can be thought. The being than which none greater can be thought. To simplify that, the greatest possible being. Not just the greatest being around. The greatest possible being now notice as a priest, Anselm, of course he believes in the existence of God, but Anselm tests whether he can demonstrate that his understanding matches his faith. 
And this is why he sets himself to prayer at the beginning of the text in chapter 2. He says, Therefore, Lord God, you who grant understanding to faith, grant that insofar as you know it useful to me, I may understand that you exist as we believe you exist, and that you are what we believe you to be. This is on page 81, right, chapter 2. Anselm prays for the gift of understanding, a gift of illumination, really. And we talked briefly about this last time. He has this very curious view, which he takes from St. Augustine, which is a form of divine illumination. You see, I mean, as we pray, for example, that in God we live and we move and we have our being, in God, so too, in our understanding of the truth, we are in God. And so in agreement with St. Augustine, Anselm believes that once this illumination or this intuition is granted by God, it cannot err. So notice up to this point, he's just given us a definition, right? If there's a God, or if God exists, he's the greatest being around, the being than which none greater can be thought. Hence, Anselm believes that he can safely say the following. That's premise one. God exists in the understanding. Now notice what Anselm means by this is that anyone, he thinks, who has heard of God, who has heard this name used, whether you're a believer or not, by the way, has some minimal conceptual understanding about this being, the being than which none greater can be thought. Notice even those who claim to not believe in God, who claim that there isn't one, they've got to at least understand what we're talking about when we say there's a God, right? You know, you say, I think that God exists, and it's like, yeah, I know what you're talking about, this kind of being, but I just don't think there is one. Anselm says the following. He says, so can it be that no such nature exists, since the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, right, quoting from the Psalms. But, he says, when this same fool hears me say something than which none greater can be thought, he surely understands what he hears, and what he understands exists in his understanding, even if he does not understand it to exist in reality. So notice, if you remember from last time, Anselm fundamentally understands the difference between concept and object. Right, so we have this issue of the concept and then an object. And he recognizes that there's a significant difference between these two, right? It's one thing to have an idea of something, and it's another for something to actually correspond with the way that the world is. And so, if someone is inclined to deny that God exists, at least in the understanding, as a conceptual understanding at least, then that person is just speaking incoherently. I mean, look, it's incoherent to say that X does not exist, whatever it is, fill in the blank when you don't know what X is. Alternatively, it is incredibly incoherent to say X does not exist in the understanding when you have to have the concept available to you before you can even make such a claim. So minimally, notice for anything that we deny the existence of, right? whether it be unicorns or werewolves or leprechauns or any of these sort of fictional items, you have to have a concept of it, right? You have to have some understanding of what that thing is. So Anselm is working with this sort of primary sort of analysis of the way in which sort of our minds work and how they grasp the nature of being. So he claims that the fool must at least understand 
what she or he claims to not exist, if only in a basic and simple form. Now again, we all know the difference, right? It's one thing to exist in the understanding, and it's another to exist in reality. So you have there on your handout a chart that we made, a list, so to speak, of a few things. And suppose we draw a vertical line between this list, and we let the line represent the division between things that exist and things that don't. On our A list, I think my, my list lines up with yours. I hope so. I put coffee. Hey, coffee belongs on that list, I think. And then there's hedgehogs. And then there's shiguas. How many of you know what a shigua is? Good. If you don't know, that's fine. And it's good that you don't know, because this is important for later. All right? So they're on the list, believe me. But then notice you've got this other list, the list of things that don't exist. And I put some select things there. You know, we, I put Batman on the list. Batman's interesting, right? We'll talk a little bit about Batman. If you don't like Batman, you can put jackalopes if you like or whatever. Uh, Bigfoot. Bigfoot's on the list, I think. You know, and again, if you don't like Bigfoot, you can talk about Sherlock Holmes, if you prefer, or Harry Potter. Yeah? And then dinosaurs. Again, if you don't like that, we can pick a specific one, like Tyrannosaurus rex, okay? Now, I want you to notice something rather interesting, just three things, right? There's a lot of things on these lists, we know. But just three things here for us to kind of think conceptually about what's going on. Notice something interesting. Each of the things that I've listed for you, at least those three on either side, they have a common characteristic. They share a feature, as a matter of fact. And it's that it's logically possible that it might have been on the other side. The things that you see there could have been on the other list. I mean, look, there's no logical necessity supposed by the things on our A list, and there's no logical impossibility, we say, implied by the things on our B list. In fact, we think we have strong evidence for thinking that number three on the B list did at one point exist. As a matter of fact, notice this just happens to be the way that reality has carved itself up. All of the things listed, whether on the A list or on the B list that are above the line, they're called contingent things. Right? So a contingent thing is something that either exists or it doesn't, but could have been otherwise. Could have been on the other list. I mean, so think carefully, like Batman, right? Batman's an interesting thing. Like, I didn't put Superman up there because he's an alien. Okay, I didn't put any of the other Marvel heroes on there because, well, they've got curious powers. But Batman is just a human being. He's a rich guy with cool toys. Now, what is impossible about that? Not much. Yeah, there could be a Batman, right? Similarly, with respect to Bigfoot, at least the way that they describe it. You know, I'm not quite sure um, which program is out there. I think it might be University of Colorado. They're actually funding grad students to go out into the woods to look for Bigfoot. I mean, I want that gig, you know? I want some money to go out and just sort of drink beer in the woods, right, looking for a non-existent thing. Um, but there's nothing about Bigfoot conceptually which says that it couldn't be, right? He's just considered to be a hominid of some sorts. And then again, dinosaurs, right? At least under an ordinary evolutionary picture, they were on the A-list at one point, right? And again, we understand with the existence. I mean, coffee, again, under an evolutionary picture, at one point, coffee did not exist, sadly, right? Although I think God might have created coffee on the eighth day. I'm not sure, right? Then hedgehogs. I mean, we, we, we understand how this works, yes? So this understanding of contingency reveals a way in which we think about things, right? How we think about them conceptually 
and sort of their fixity in existence. All right. To use Anselm's terminology now, the things on the A-list exist in reality. Though many of them, of course, also exist in the understanding for us. At least the first two. Yeah? Right, so notice something can exist in the understanding if you have a concept of it. And you have a concept of many things that exist. Trees and dogs and, you know, penguins and giraffes. So they exist both in reality and in the understanding for us. The things on the B list, for Anselm, exist only in the understanding. That is, they have no correspondence with anything, with any object out in the real world. Okay? Now let's add something to the list. You've got a line there, horizontal line that's drawn, but we're still on the B list right now. Below that line, we have another object. The round square in Euclidean geometry. Again, we don't think like this all the time. But, you know, philosophers, sadly, think about these kinds of things. The round square in Euclidean geometry is on the B list. But it's very different from the things that are above it. You see, while 1, 2, and 3 could be otherwise, the round square in Euclidean geometry could never be on the A list. It is such that the conditions of that concept will never allow it to exist. A round square in Euclidean geometry is the following. We can have a concept of it, right? Here are the conditions for it. Right? It's a four-sided figure, right, having four right angles and four equal sides, such that all the points on the perimeter are equidistant from the center. Can't imagine one. Can't get on AutoCAD and make one, right? Right? You can't put away half a fifth of Jack Daniels and imagine one. It's not going to happen. It's not coming. You can't imagine because it's an impossible object. In, in, in geometry, in Euclidean geometry, it is not possible that one thing can have all four of those features at the same time. So we call this an impossible thing. An impossible thing is something that belongs on the B list but could never be on the A list. Again, what's important to note about this is that right away, we can judge that that's true just by means of reason alone. You don't have to go out into the world and like look behind every rock, right, and behind every tree to determine that there are no round squares in Euclidean geometry. You can just know something about the nature of existence by means of reason alone. There are other things you can know. Like, there can be no red things that aren't colored. There can be no things that are taller than themselves. <sighs> you can just know this, right? You don't have to go out into the world and check. So it's an interesting observation that we can make about the nature of reality, that we can determine something true about it just by means of reason alone, just by understanding the definitions of the terms, in other words. Well, if that's the case... Notice, then by implication, Anselm thinks it should be possible for something maybe to show up on the A-list, below the line, such that it would never show up on the B-list. And that reason might justify it. If there were such a thing, we would call that a necessary thing. A necessary thing is something that exists. right? It's on the A-list, but it could never show up on the B-list. It must always exist. 
And of course, Anselm thinks God is like this. So by the way, these are the modal terms that we use to describe different kinds of existence. And we talk like this with regard to claims too. So for example, it's a contingent claim that you're all here today. It's not necessary. You could have, done, you could have been somewhere else. You, you, you could have done otherwise, yes? You could have worn different clothes, right? You, you could have gotten a haircut, right? There are lots of things that are contingently true about the things that you did today. And so... Let's see what Anselm has to say about God. So premise one, God exists in the understanding. That's the first premise. Premise two, God can be conceived to exist in reality. Now this is an act of thought, an act of conception. Notice premise two isn't denying the existence of God yet, nor is it assuming it. All premise two means is that it's possible that God exists, according to Anselm. On the condition that God doesn't exist, maybe God's on the B list, at least it's possible to think of God as existing, he claims. It claims that unlike the round square, God is simply a possible being right now. God could show up on the A list, though we're not sure yet. I hope you realize there's nothing tricky up Anselm's sleeve, right? Because Batman, of course, has got the same kind of condition, it seems, right? It's possible that he could exist. Incidentally, if someone's going to go about trying to deny premise two, you've got a great deal of work ahead of you. Right? So uh, trying to demonstrate the possibility or the impossibility of the divine concept itself um, is difficult undertaking, and I actually teach an entire class on this. Right? You might think that that would be boring, but it's really awesome. Because what we do is we talk about the omni-properties. Yes, what does it mean for God to be omnipotent? What does it mean for God to be omniscient? What does it mean for God to be omnibenevolent? Right? What does it mean for God to be eternal? And whether or not there's any kind of incompatibility when we begin to understand right, the complexities of the divine nature or the simplicities of it. Right? Third premise. This is the most curious one. The third premise is if something exists only in the understanding and can be conceived or thought to exist in reality, then it might have been greater than it is. We want to be able to understand what he's saying here. Premise 3 claims that existence and reality helps us to be able to make a value judgment of some sort. Surely we recognize that at least for most things that we understand, it's better to exist than not to exist. You know... I know we're Christians, but we also need money, yes? So we can think of money, and money has great benefits to us. You know, so imagine a $100 bill in your hand. How about that? Now, that thing has a little bit of value to you, yes? But actually, it doesn't exist, does it? Wouldn't it be better, the thing you're thinking of, were actually to exist? It, the thing you're thinking of. Imagine that beautiful car that you've always wanted. Yeah. It's one thing to think about it, and it's another for you to imagine, right, and understand that maybe it exists. Wouldn't it be better if you actually had the keys in your car, you know, and you could just go drive off in your beautiful car? A real friend is much greater than one that's merely hoped for. So by greater than, Anselm means better than or superior to. It's a qualitative term that recognizes two important factors. First, 
Here's one thing we know. Non-existent things have no features whatsoever. Right? Non-existent things have no intrinsic value at all. Right? And two, in order to evaluate a non-existent thing, notice what you must do. And this is very important. When you want to think about a non-existent thing, when you think about something on the B list, guess what you have to do? You have to be able to conceive of it as if it did exist. Right? So you have to be able to evaluate it as if it were to exist, and then you can make a value judgment about it. And so this issue about existence and making a value judgment is very important. Anselm's first not saying that any particular thing that exists is greater than anything else that doesn't exist. Right? So he's making a comparison of apples to apples, not apples to oranges. He's not saying that because this marker exists and the amazing Sherlock Holmes does not, that this thing is greater than Sherlock Holmes. He's not saying that. He's saying that for anything that you can think of that doesn't exist, that its existent counterpart would have a greater value than its non-existent counterpart. Okay? Now, maybe you don't realize it, but this is a principle that you use every day. Consider, we all make plans, don't we? We all make plans for the weekend. We all have goals, right? We all have things that we want to achieve. How is it that you are able to do these things? Only by recognizing that whatever it is that you're considering, right? Making plans for the weekend. Yes, tomorrow's Friday. Right? You're making plans for the weekend. Those states of affairs are non-actual. And so how is it that you're able to determine that you should be doing those things? Only because you imagine them as if they were to exist and recognize that if they did, they would be more valuable than you not doing those things. So you're constantly making this existential choice about value and about what exists and what doesn't. It's this implicit principle that we carry with us when we do anything in terms of just making choices about what we want to do with our lives. So, whether we're willing to admit it or not, again, which is a matter, I think, of rational psychology for, for Anselm, premise three is one of the underlying principles that many of us implicitly hold near and dear to. Again, it allows us to construct goals and to make plans and work towards the future and do all the things that we do. Only three premises, right? Only three. After pointing out premise three, Anselm begins what I think is one of the most elegant reductio ad absurdum arguments in the history of philosophy. It's a very simple argument, right? So you've got these three premises and everything turns on them. Premise four, a supposition. Suppose God exists only in the understanding. So Anselm goes straight for the throat here, right? He doesn't try to positively prove the existence of God. He's like, suppose the fool is right and there is no God. Suppose God's on the B list, yeah? So he takes the indirect route here and he supposes the opposite of the conclusion that he wants to establish. To say that God exists only in the understanding is directly to say, suppose God does not exist. Notice whenever someone employs what is called a reductio ad absurdum argument, which is what this is, the goal is to refute the premise that you're supposing. You want to show that that supposition is going to lead you to a problem. In fact, it's going to lead you to a contradiction. So if I suppose this, it leads me to a contradiction. Contradictions are bad. I mean, I just... Contradictions are bad. Okay, and so... When you get there, you realize that your supposition is false, right? It led you down the wrong garden path. 
Once this is done, you can logically conclude the opposite of what you supposed. And so this is a valid form of deductive argument. Here we go. Suppose God exists only in understanding. Notice if that's true, God might have been greater than he is. Why is that? Well, God can be conceived to exist in reality, yes. Apply premise three, right? Anything that can be conceived to exist in reality, but exists only in the understanding, could have been greater than it is. So God might have been greater than he is. Again, by premise three, a God that can be conceived to exist in reality is greater than a God that exists only in the understanding. Again, this is just a specific instance of premise three. If the fool understands what he means by the word God, then if God exists only in the understanding, he can just as easily conceive that it is possible that this being could exist in reality. There's nothing underhanded about that. Again, otherwise the fool wouldn't be able to utter the claim that there is no God and be saying anything meaningful by it. But if the fool does claim this, Anselm considers, the fool should understand that premise five follows. Once premise five is established, Anselm points out that a grave error has been made. Six. Thus, by definition, the being than which none greater can be thought is a being than which a greater can be thought. Premise six follows straight away from the definition of God and premise five. And what we've generated now is a formal contradiction. Either God, whatever God is, is the being than which nothing greater can be thought, or he's not. But it can't be both. If the being than which none greater can be thought, it could be greater than it is. Then it's not the being than which none greater can be thought. Given that a contradiction has been generated by the supposition in premise four, we are forced to conclude it is false that four, right? It is false that God exists only in the understanding. Again, as I mentioned, whenever a claim in a reductio ad absurdum argument generates a contradiction, that's a logical indication that the claim itself is false. If it's false that God exists only in the understanding, then it follows, therefore, that God exists in reality as well as in the understanding. Anselm thinks that he has shown us that if you truly understand the concept of God, the very nature of what it means to be God, this simple condition, then as a matter of reason, it follows that God must exist. Again, your argument doesn't poof, make God exist. It's a recognition by reason itself of the nature of being. Hence, the concept of God implies the existence of God for Anselm. And this is everything that's going on just in chapter 2 of your text on page 81 to 82. Any questions about this argument? It's curious, yes? We don't think like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's curious. Um, so the issue is, what are you thinking of, right? So do you think that um, you sort of like, so you, not just, you don't just want to assert the existence of a unicorn, right? Because there's nothing about the denial of the existence of a unicorn that implies a formal contradiction. 
So you need to pack something else into your definition in order to help with that. So what are we going to do? What are we going to pack it in? Yeah, so uh, uh, we, we need, we need, can, we give, can we give our unicorn a name? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. What shall we name our unicorn? Huh? George? <laughs> right, so George. Let's define George as the perfect unicorn, yes? The unicorn than, what, than which none greater can be thought. How's that? Yeah? This is precisely what Gaunilo does in his reply to Anselm. Right? He uses an island instead, which is kind of lame, right? He's like, yeah, what if there's a perfect island, man? I'm like, come on, is that all you got? Right? No, we're going for the perfect unicorn, yes? So here's the funny thing about the perfect unicorn. What's premise one of the argument again? Would you remind me? Yeah. Yeah, God exists in the understanding. So let's replace everywhere where there's God. So our definition now is George is the unicorn than which none greater can be conceived, right? And so now our first premise is George exists in the understanding. Yes? Is that, is that all right? So here's the question. What are you thinking of when you think of George? Okay, you're thinking of this beautiful thing, yes? Right? I mean, this is where Anselm was going to ask you, sort of, let's be careful about what you think you're thinking of. You know? You've got a horse in mind, and you plopped a horn on it, right, for good measure. So what makes it the perfect one now? Good. And a very good question, right? How is God different from the perfect fill-in-the-blank any other delimited object? Well, that's the first thing. Because for any delimited objects that we think of, it comes with certain conditions. So let's start with something silly for right now. So I want you to think of an infinitely large circle. And he's like, yeah, I can think of that. Sure I can. I just did. Right, it's, off. it's awesome. Now, I want you to, <laughs> now that you've thought of that, I want you to think of an infinitely large square. Yeah? So how are they different? Well, I mean, sort of. You have one condition, right? One's a circle and one's a square. But now you just added a condition onto it. It's infinitely large. So it doesn't have borders. But notice the difference between a square and a circle in our conceivability is that they're delimited objects, right? They're, they have boundary conditions. Right? So this comes right out of Aristotle, by the way. It's, like it's not possible for something to be of infinite magnitude. Right? Because you, you, we can think of this. We can say this with words. Hold on. it. We'll talk about that problem in a sec. It's in chapter 4. We can say, yes, yeah, there's an infinitely large circle. We can say that. And you can kind of think of something really big. But if you really were imagining it, what would you be thinking of? Just a blank plane. Do you understand? Because you wouldn't know the edges. But by definition, it's a circle and not a square. So it has to have boundary conditions. And so there has to be some distinguishing marks between the two. So there's one problem. And now we're thinking of George. Now. So you've got a horse. Clearly, we have an understanding of horses. right? You can imagine one. Horses have very specific features. And yet, 
when you think of a horse, even if it's the perfect horse, you know that it, there's certain things that it doesn't have. Right? I mean, if it's a horse, it doesn't breathe underwater. Oh, but it's the perfect horse, so it breathes underwater. Okay. Um, well, it's a horse, yes, and it's not a tree, right? So it can't grow fruit. Oh, but it's the perfect horse, and so you can, like, pluck apples right off of it. I mean, notice what we're going to end up doing, yes? What's happening here as we start thinking about the perfect horses? Huh? Either it eventually becomes God. It becomes an absolute being, right, that has all the conditions that we think that we can actually define using the term God. Or it's a delimited object that we really can't imagine. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, here's the deal. For any individual item that we could pick, that we would want to plug into that formula, right? By the way, it's a proof and not a formula. That's the first thing that Anselm says. This is a proof, and proofs pertain to specific things. Right? So it's not a formula where you can just plug and chug anything you like into it. But anytime we think of something curious like that, and we try to, yes? I mean, so it's not, it's not a dumb question. It's, not, it's awesome, okay? Right? I'm thinking of George right now. At least I'm trying. We think of delimited things, things that are one thing and not the other. They have certain features and they lack others. And, yet we, and then we just throw this modifier on there. But it's perfect, and so it has no limitations. But clearly then, it can't be a horse, right? right think of the perfect pizza, right? We can have fights about that one, right, what the perfect pizza is, you know? But, Anselm would say, as he replies to Gaunillo, when we think of the perfect being, not just kind of being, yes, but the perfect being, what are some things that we might be willing to agree on? Here's one. Whatever that being is like, it's got power. It's alive, yes? It's a being. It has power. You know that if you give this being infinite power, guess what it can do? It can know everything, right? If you had infinite power, here's one thing that you could do. You could know of all true things that are true and of all false things that are false. So, omnipotence implies omniscience. And here's another thing that it can do. Since it knows of all true things that they're true and of all false things that they're false, then it can know the best course of action to take in any particular circumstance. Yeah. And because it's all-powerful, nothing would prevent it from doing that. And that's what goodness is. Goodness is to know the right end, the best course of action to take in any particular circumstance, and... Nothing else distracts you from it. Nothing else, quote-unquote, tempts you away from that good. That's omnibenevolence. Anselm thinks we can actually churn out, right, once we get this perfect being. Not a kind of being, yes, but the perfect being itself, greater than all. Um, we would get the traditional attributes of the divine nature, Where? Oh, up there, yeah. Sorry, I'm hearing voices. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Did you say terrorist? Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it, I don't think you believe that terrorists are inherently bad. Could you restate 
Yeah, I'm sorry. He says, he said, uh, tell me if I got it right, okay, um, that, that well, what about something like a terrorist, right? How can we say that a, a, an imaginary terrorist, um, you know, in comparison with an actual one, that an actual one would actually be better than uh, a non-existent terrorist? Does that capture what you were saying properly? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, what's a terrorist? A patriot. No. Yeah? What's a, ter what's a terrorist? Yeah, someone who might do a bad thing, right? But notice, like, packing that into the nature of that being is interesting. I mean, here's, here's one thing you don't want to deny, do you? That, that, I mean, and this is what he's going to ask in De Causa Diaboli. Does God create things that are not good? No, and so God created the terrorist. And so what he created was a human being, a human being that has great features, amazing features, but what do they do with them? Yeah, they, they choose to pervert those goods that they have, right? They choose either to give up, as he'll talk about, give up original justice or rectitude, right-willing, but notice, even in using it, here's the weird thing, even in using that power, he's exercising a great good that he was given. And God would say, better that he exist than not. Otherwise, why are the demons still around? Have you ever wondered this? Right? Like, I, mean, like, I don't know about you guys, right? but from what I was told, and I understand that we Christians believe that there are things visible and invisible, right? that there are demons as well as angels, and if God hated the demons so much, right, because they were evil, why wouldn't he just destroy them? They don't seem to serve any kind of useful function, do they? Right? So we want to distinguish, I think, between a term that we use to explain the character of someone, right, their dispositions and how they behave, versus what kind of thing that they are. Does that help a little bit? So, so, one more example, and then, and then I'll, I'll move back, okay? Uh, how many of you appreciate a nice glass of water when you're thirsty? Appreciate, appreciate a nice glass of water when you're thirsty. Maybe you want something else, yes? But water sometimes hits the spot, yeah? Maybe a cold beer does, too. <laughs> but let's go for water for a moment, yeah? So, water is good, yes? Water is good for cleansing, Right? It hydrates us. It's part of who we are. Right? It helps us to become healthy. But here's another thing that water can do when it's misused. Right? Water doesn't belong in our lungs. Yes or yes? Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't belong in our lungs. It can, I mean, in fact, you all know this, and I'm sure you do. You don't even have to like, try to drown in a swimming pool to understand what it's like to have a little water in your lungs. You just ever kind of choke on some of your own spit for just, you know, have you ever had that happen? I'm sure you have. It's terrible, okay? But we don't want to say water is bad, writ large, because, well, when used a certain kind of way or put in the wrong place, it might cause us harm. Right? I mean, that's what we want to think about right now. Hold on to your questions, okay? Because I think that's a good one. We're going to try to come back to it, okay, in more detail. But I think that's a good one because, because Anselm is worried about this, by the way. 
he's worried about this, particularly with regard to that third premise. It seems like there are certain things that we sometimes do want to say, well, it'd be better that that thing did not exist than that it does. So it's worth worrying about. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can conceive of infinity and you can conceive of the round square. You can't imagine the round square and you can't imagine infinity, nor can you have all the numbers in your head, but you understand perfectly well the conditions for what infinity means. You can conceive of that. So no, there's, there's a difference. There's a difference between conceiving a concept and don't confuse this with imagining something. Yeah? Imagining something is very different. I can conceive of a round square, but I can't imagine one. I can conceive of a chiliagon. How many of you guys know what a chiliagon is? A 1,000-sided figure. I can conceive of one. I, I understand perfectly well, right, what a 1,000-sided figure is in geometry. But now imagine one. I'll wait. Make sure it's exactly a thousand sides, right? Not 942, not 356. For me, after about 20, it gets fuzzy, okay? Right? You can't imagine one, but you know perfectly well what one is, and if you, like, if you had to make one for work, you could do it, right? It would be terrible, but you could do it. Yeah? You can imagine things that are impossible. Right? This is what um, Lewis Carroll was talking about you know, in, in Alice in Wonderland. Now, you can imagine things that are impossible. Like Lightning McQueen. Do we all know who Lightning McQueen is? Right? It's hard for me to use good examples for, you know, for different groups of people. Uh, uh, you know, it, pretty much any Disney movie, yes? Like talking teacups and talking cars. And like, all of that's impossible. I mean, like literally, these, you cannot have a teacup that's alive, right? That's talking. That's impossible, but we can, make, we can make movies out of them, yes? We can make cartoons, we can imagine them. Right, so this issue of conceivability and, and imagination, right? They, they don't connect, right? They don't connect at all. So, yeah, we ought to worry a little bit about some things. Um, any other questions? Yeah, Georgia Unicorn. So, in getting back to that, right, to round things out, um, when we recognize the fact that we really can't quite pin down anything other than its delimited features, right, it's, it's, it's finitude, right, and understanding that it's a horse, right, and not a pizza, it's a horse and, you know, not a, uh, you know, a roll of paper towels or something, we recognize that, technically speaking, we don't have a concept of such a thing. Well, you've got a concept of a horse, absolutely. Right, you have a concept of, you know, you can put the horn on it in your head, right? You can perform an act of what's called conceptual addition, right? Where you can take a horn off of something and put it onto it. Right? It's really easy. We do this all the time. But you actually don't have a concept of a perfect unicorn. Those are just words. That's how Anselm would explain it. Yeah. Sure. I know, I know exactly what it 
No, exactly. At least you hope you do, right? You hope you do. I think Anselm thinks that too, but not about tables. Yeah. So he thinks that the Platonic ideas in agreement with Augustine are in the mind of God. And again, we are in God somehow. Reason, the natural light of reason, you may have heard this expression, right? Reason somehow is illuminated by the divine mind when we use it properly and focus our efforts a certain kind of way. Uh, we are able to tap into those divine ideas, but we never perfectly have them ourselves. We're, we're, we're imperfect creatures. That's why if I were to ask you what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for what makes tables tables, like what would that be? You know totally what a table is, right? I, I, there probably isn't an instance that I could find where you would be confused, maybe. Right? There are some weird things, yes? Yeah. Yeah, and so this is why the thing itself, yes, this is why those Platonic ideas, they're not things, they're, they're not individual objects, they are blueprints, archetypes in the mind of God, right? The, the conditions under which anything that is an instance of it could be made, but it is not a thing. It's, it's not like God has tables in his mind, yes, or horses. Or humans. Yeah, the question is whether or not we ever even understand those things perfectly. You know. Yeah. Are there any compelling ontological arguments for God not existing? You said compelling. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, gosh. There is one. Um, and then there are objections, of course, to the ontological argument concerning how you should think about existence. Right? So, so the, the famous one is from Immanuel Kant, where Immanuel Kant wants to suggest that being is not a predicate. Okay? So that is being, is, being doesn't add anything more to the concept of something right? over and above the base conditions that define what that thing is. You know, so when you, when you talk about, like, say, when you say, I have $100 in my pocket, let's say you say that, right? And then you say the following, I've got 100 actual dollars in my pocket. I've added nothing to the concept of that thing I'm talking about, right? I mean, that, that's his response. His, his observation is when, whenever we add existence onto something and, and we predicate it of a thing, it doesn't change it. And the only thing that someone like Anselm and then his later Platonic predecessors like Rene Descartes, right, who's a, who's a Platonist here, is going to say is, okay, if you don't think existence is a predicate, that is, if you don't think it's something that a thing can have that changes the way that we understand the concept, then what the heck is existence? We know the difference between these two claims. Right? Father Sean exists. Harry Potter does not exist. What's the difference between those two claims? I mean, you know, Harry Potter's magical, or we can talk about their individuating features, but there seems to be something else that's kind of important, yes? To help differentiate those two things besides their individuating characteristics. Maybe, yeah, that's right. So what's the one thing? <laughs> yeah. 
It's that he exists. He has something, Anselm will say. He has something that Harry Potter does not. Whether you like it or not. (laughs) So what the heck is existence, yes? If not that. Um, Several of them turn on that, sort of how we think about the concept of existence itself. Yeah. There's another one that is a bit more tricky. I have to think about it a little bit. Try to remember it. Kind of, it's not getting old, right? Things are not coming to me. So, any other questions here about that? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, the arts, obviously. Right. Got it. Well, I mean, the issue of representation is very important in the medieval era and, and sort of how we describe representation and, and representational thought in particular. I mean, so that comes to mind. And so, uh, again, I'm not familiar with that particular position, but the issue is um, wouldn't we then worry about whether or not we ourselves have any kind of access to the divine nature through, through nature itself? Like, what does it mean for me to, I mean, is it, is it blasphemous for me to sort of think of my wife right now in my head? Is it blasphemous for me to think of my son? Because I'm trying to represent him in my mind, yes. Um, not draw a picture of him, but clearly it, he's not in my mind, right? In order for me to think of him, I have to uh, perform an act of representational thought, right? I have to have a picture of him and understand who he is and how he presents himself and if I'm not allowed to do that, that's, how do I function? You know, how do I decide, what am I going to eat for lunch today? Right, so you get hungry, and so what do you start doing? <laughs> you begin to start thinking, oh, I'm going to have a sandwich, or I'm going to have some soup, or I'm going to have a salad. Right? Like, so you begin to start representing objects in your mind. And that's a very dangerous game to play, right? To say, well, if that's blasphemous, what has God designed us for? Yeah, 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 and 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 that seems to be more uh, of a, a true worry, right? Right, the 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 concept of, of of idols, yes, having false gods. In other words, that's definitely a significant thing to worry about. But again, the real question is, what has God designed us for then in this world? He has given us this ability, this ability to be able to represent. Right, we can't help but do it. Right? Because even as we think and communicate, notice what I'm doing with my noises. Right? I'm trying to convey truth to you. And here's the weird thing about language. Right? 
You aren't writing a transcript in your head as I'm talking to you, and I'm not reading off a transcript in my mind as I'm speaking to you. I'm just speaking to you, and you're hearing just acoustical disturbances, but you're not. You're thinking things as I'm speaking. I'm making noise, but you're thinking things. And that's very curious <laughs> that we do this. Again, you're not, like, you're not hearing it and reading off in your head what I'm saying or whatever. You're just understanding and so we can't, notice we can't, here's the claim, we can't help but represent, right? So, so the real blasphemy is in thinking, I can actually create. That's, that's the Christian problem, right? I actually have the power to make something, right, independently of God. I can't do that. All I have is the power to make and to represent. You know? and, and, and in that, wait for it, right? In that, I convey the image and likeness of God. Yeah? I can't do what God does the way God does it. Yes, sir? Yeah, we were worried about that, I think, a little bit before. Um, I think so. I mean, here's, here, again, the, the, here's the one principle that, that Anselm is going to sort of really try to hammer home is that non-existence has no properties whatsoever. And so existence, or being, always has what we call... We, here, here's how we recognize it. So consider, anything that you recognize as, as existing, anything, it has what we call positive property attributions, positive characteristics, positive features. And insofar as you get exposed in the world to these positive features immediately, as we saw with De Veritate, yeah, there's a desire for what those things are you begin to recognize what's it good for, what's it not good for. That's the platonic issue right there. Right? In fact, Plato and Augustine and Anselm along for the ride are going to say, to understand anything, to understand anything at all, what a piano is, what a pew is, what a book is, what a bottle of water is, anything requires that you have to be able to answer one question. What's it good for? What's its function? What's it do? If you can't answer that question, you really don't know it, right? You really don't know what that thing is. Right, so we can give this book to the physicists, yeah? They're going to have some fun with that, aren't they? We're going to give the book to the physicists, and we're going to tell them to use their disciplines to explain this object using all of their sciences. And they can do a great deal of things, yes? They can analyze Right? The materials out of which it was made, they can break it down into various elemental components, nitrogen, carbon, etc., etc. They can tell us the number of pages, its weight, its density, all the way down to quantum events, if they like. And that'll be a really big report. So they can give us a full description, presumably, of this object in terms of what Aristotle later will call material and efficient causal explanation. And you can say, man, that's awesome. It's a really cool report. So what is it? You can still ask that question. Why? Yeah, all that data does not answer that one important question. And if you want to know what it is, what must you do? Not put it into the mass spectrometer. If you want to know what this is, what must you do? You must read it. You must open it up. See what's inside. 
That's what we call its final cause, its purpose, its telos. And um, Anselm is on to that. Because if God brings things into existence, yes, and he brings in things into existence which have defined quantities and genus and species and everything else, each thing has a function. Each thing has a purpose. And just like we can figure out how to grow good tomatoes or to uh, raise a dog, and raising a dog and raising a dog well is very different from uh, raising a goldfish, yes? We can determine then what is the nature of a thing, what are its proper features, and then uh, how, how it can live well. And we can do it for ourselves too, by the way. But the curious thing about us is that we have not just a natural end, but we have a supernatural end as well. Right, so we know how to live well as a human being, yes, how to be healthy, right, and sort of ac accomplish certain kinds of goals as a human being, but we also recognize that we have a supernatural goal. Now, the issue of language, I can't remember who brought it up, you might have brought it up. This issue of language is important. Again, we talked about it in De Veritate. Um, and Anselm brings it up here in chapter 4. So consider, if we can try to remember what was going on in the argument, Anselm believes not only that God exists in reality, but that God is the kind of being, he says, that cannot be conceived not to exist. So he thinks that God is a necessary being. The very concept or essence of God implies his existence. And so, if that's true, suppose he's right about that, how is it that the fool can say in their heart that there is no God? That is, say it and mean it, yes? How can they do that? For if the fool really meant what they said, then he's saying something that's impossible. He's saying something that he really can't conceive. So in chapter 4, Anselm anticipates this, and he gives us a little distinction, and this is at the bottom of that first page of your handout, I think. He says there are two ways in which something can be thought or said in the heart. Okay? The first, he says, a thing can be thought when the word signifying it is conceived, right? When you think of the word. So you can think of something by means of just the words. The second condition is a thing is conceived or thought of when the very entity or thing is understood. You understand what that thing is. So you either think of a word or you think of the actual object and understand it. Okay? And oftentimes, notice we're not careful about making this distinction, about determining which one we're actually talking about. According to Anselm, he says, God can be conceived not to exist in the first sense. But notice, to do that is simply to say that the word is empty for that person. In sense A, the only thing that you're thinking of is a word, a noise, a shape on your paper, and nothing more. And if that's the case, you really don't have in your understanding the concept of God, Anselm thinks. The fool simply doesn't understand what he hears. The idea of God is not in his understanding. But again, that's not an objection to the ontological argument. Anselm says that's a sign of an unilluminated mind. Now let me help you out. Look on your list again. The word shigwa. 
What is that? What is that thing? Yeah, did you look it up? <laughs> yeah, he cheated. Okay, what, think about that. For most of us now, even before, yes, it was just a noise. And you, you could honestly say, there are no shiguas. But what are you saying? You're like, what is that? I don't know. Right? But there aren't any. That's what you're saying. But if I were to tell you that it's a watermelon, it's a Japanese word for watermelon. Now notice what you did. You took a noise. You hooked it up with a concept that you already have. And now you have an understanding of existence. Now that you know what the thing is, for you to say that it doesn't exist, well then you'd be the fool, yeah? So according to Anselm, in this first sense of thinking, of conception, the fool is really just saying the word God doesn't mean anything to them. It has, he says, no signification for them. Just like other words, gel macromation or poma phlebiton. Those are words I just made up. They don't mean anything. They're just noises. Yet to do that, again, isn't much of an objection at all. Again, think of it this way. And, and he puts this in the text in different places. It's like no one, he says, who really understands what fire and water are should say that fire is water. Although I just said that, yes? I can say that. I can say fire is water. I can say there are round squares in Euclidean geometry. I can say there are red things that aren't colored. I can just say these things, yes? I can utter these words. But if I really understood what I was saying, if I really understood what those words meant, I would recognize I'm saying false things. I'm saying meaningless things in some circumstances. So he says you can do this. It's possible to conceive of this way. You can talk this way. But it doesn't mean that fire is water. Yeah? So as he tells you in the text on page 83, he says, no one who understands what God is can think that God does not exist. Although he may say these words in his heart with no signification at all or some peculiar or foreign signification. They've got a funny idea of who God is. So only in sense B, when you understand the concept, when you understand the thing, that God cannot be conceived not to exist. In this sense, you understand what the concept means. You understand the entity that the word God is attempting to signify. As Anselm says in the text, whoever understands this properly understands that this being exists in such a way that he cannot even in thought fail to exist. So how shall we put this? For Anselm, uh, God is really, really cool. He's the best thing ever. The perfect being. The being whose reality is so great that we cannot help but confront God at every moment in thought and word and deed. How can you hide from this being? And how could this being actually be hidden from you? It's an interesting observation anyway. And in this we sort of see his spirituality coming out, right? God is close to us. Sometimes so close, right, that we just can't even see. Kind of like for those of you who are wearing your glasses, 
The hope is that if your glasses are good, yes, if they do their job, you don't see them. Yeah? They are the tools by which you see. Right? They are the tools by which you see other things. When your glasses are dirty, you know, they, they, they serve us no function. But if they do their job properly, we shouldn't notice them. And so you forget about them sometimes, don't you? All right. Got a little time, yeah? Let's talk about the devil. An interesting being. <laughs> so now let's move on to On the Fall of the Devil. Okay? And On the Fall of the Devil is a very curious dialogue. It's really one of Anselm's more lucid dialogues, and there's a lot going on in there. And The Fall of the Devil, he's trying to address a great deal of issues. Right? A lot of stuff is going on there. Uh, on the one hand, he's sort of raising the problem of evil, but not really. The problem of evil is not that important to Anselm, it seems. Right? The problem of evil is sort of a simple logical or evidential problem. So many people wonder, okay, we've got ourselves a God. He's awesome, right? He's all good and all knowing and all powerful, minimally. So if God's all good and all knowing and all powerful, what are we to say about the concept of evil? Clearly, it's not as if anything would get by him. God knows about it all, yes? So it's nothing would get by God. Clearly, God's got the power, of course, to stop all evil if he wanted to, right? Any instance of evil, he has the power to stop it. And we say he's all good. Well, it seems like an all good being would want to stop any evil that it could, yes? And yet evil exists. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Either he's not all good, he doesn't know about it, or he's not powerful enough. Right? This is a very simplified version of the problem. Okay? Anselm doesn't really worry about this. He's not worried about trying to make sense of the relationship between God and evil in that respect. Anselm is worried about something a little deeper, right? Uh, what our gentleman up top there was trying to worry about, it seems, which is, uh, people do really terrible things, right? God created them. He created them with these amazing abilities and features. And yet, how, how on earth can they turn from him? What kinds of things would distract us from doing the good, particularly if you're an angel, Yes? So you're an angel. You're in the presence of God. What could possibly distract you from doing what you're supposed to be doing? That's a really interesting question, I think. What caused Satan and his minions to fall? Look, if you can explain Satan and his minions, human beings are easy, right? We're dumb. <laughs> we get distracted very easily. We, d we don't even have decent knowledge. We're not fully and completely in the presence of God like in heaven. Yeah, of course we're going to make mistakes. Oh man, but the angels? Come on. What are we going to do about this? So Anselm worries in, on the fall of the devil about this particular issue, and he wants to understand precisely what could be going on. And it begins in chapter 1, as I mentioned with some of the other writings that we've looked at, with this exegetical point. 
they start with this passage from 1 Corinthians. And the argument that they begin with is this. Does the phrase from St. Paul, quote, what do you have that you did not receive? Does that apply to humans only? Or does it apply to the angels? Is everything that the angels, is everything that they have, was it received from God? And from this, of course, emerges this complex discussion of the origin of evil. So Anselm explicates the origin of evil in the context of the fall of Satan, like I mentioned. And again, this is a useful thought experiment. We ought to really just sort of appreciate someone just kind of you know, sticking their feet in where they don't belong. This is difficult stuff. And um, he's trying to conjecture precisely what might be taking place here. So in the first six chapters of On the Fall of the Devil, Anselm argues in agreement with St. Augustine again. He is sort of a self-professed Augustinian. Right um, when uh, Lanfranc, right? Remember, you know, Father Sean talked about him uh, t- uh, when he presented his writings to to Lanfranc. Lanfranc wanted him to cite his sources. He's like, "Where are you getting this from?" And Anselm writes a footnote. He's like, "You know, there's nothing that I think that I've written on, right? Which is either blasphemous, or sort of against the creeds, or against Scripture, or against you know the Holy Saint Augustine, right? All of my writings," he says, "I think are in in line with what he's said." And so he really wants to somehow piggyback on what St. Augustine has said, and yet he actually takes these ideas and concepts to a higher level than St. Augustine ever sort of was worried about. So he agrees everything comes from God. God creates everything, the heavens and the earth, of all things seen and unseen, he creates them. And from God all things come, God is wholly good, so only good things come from God, he says. Hence, everything gets what it has from God, and it's all good. But, wow, what do we say about Satan? Something went wrong. And the question is, what happened? The devil lacked perseverance in truth. And this is a definite good, of course, right, to be able to persevere in the truth. And that was the cause of his fall. So if that's what happened, it sure does appear as if God didn't give the devil what he needed to persevere. The devil can't rightly be blamed for his transgression because God didn't give him what he needed to succeed. Well, Anselm wants to say, oh, maybe that's not exactly what happened. Yeah? Maybe there's a little something more that's going on. The first observation that he makes is, when we think carefully about this relationship between God and the devil, first of all, the observation suggests that there's this false inference that's taking place. That since the devil didn't have something, presumably, that God didn't give it to him. So, non-receiving implies non-giving. And Anselm says that's just completely false, right? That, that doesn't follow. It's possible, Anselm points out, for someone to not receive something even though that gift was made available to them. When the person on the receiving end refuses the gift. Yeah, so you, you bring a gift to someone, you bring a you gift to your, to your niece or your nephew, and, and right? And they reject it. And so, so notice, it's true, they don't have it, right? 
They don't have it. But it's not because it wasn't given to them, do you understand? They refused to accept it. Or they refused to keep it. Yes, they, they, they accepted the gift, but then found something better to exchange it for. You know, this happens during Christmas, right? <laughs> you, you give gifts and people exchange things. So then he says, God is said to not give perseverance to the devil, if we want to talk like that, because the devil did not accept it. Quote, God did not give perseverance to him because he deserted that will by willing what he ought not. And by deserting it, he did not retain it. It's on that chapter. So hence the devil presumably had a will. He had a choice, do you understand? This is the first thing that he wants to explain. He had a choice. He had the capacity to do what we say Adam and Eve had the capacity to do. Right? You sort of to will rightly or to not will rightly. They had the capacity to receive perseverance, that is, retain what they were given. But he didn't continue to will it. He didn't continue to keep it. He says the devil freely willed to abandon what he was given, which was original justice, because he willed to be like God. And the question is why? Anselm doesn't know why. He doesn't know. He's like, well, we don't know why. All we can say is this. The devil willed something. He willed for something that he didn't have and that he ought not have willed at the time. Again, we don't know what this is. Only God knows what this could be. But given the assumption of the fall, right, you sort of assume the fall, something like this had to take place, according to Anselm. There were only two things that Satan could have done in this original option that he had available to him with God, this fundamental option, as you think about it. He could have willed justice. He could have willed perseverance in the good. Or he could will something else that he thought was a good that was advantageous to him, but that he did not have. To will justice? Well, that would have turned out well. He would not have sinned. So the devil had to have willed for something, something that he saw could have been a possible advantage to him, something that he was not given, something that he should not have willed. On page 178, Anselm gives us an interesting explanation of inordinate desire here, right? He says, by inordinately willing something, in addition to what he had received, he stretched out his will beyond the bounds of justice. So Anselm is sort of opening the door here for the possibility that there is an activity that we can engage in, right? So having been created in the image and likeness of God, we have this ability, this ability to reason and will, and in many respects the angels share this as well, right? They have the ability to reason and will. And they make choices. And one of the choices that they have to make, that we make all the time, is what are the goods? What are the goods that are out there? What's been given to me? And should I appreciate the goods that I have been given? Very simple choice, as a matter of fact. So Anselm tells us that the devil should not have willed what he did, whatever it was that he wanted, because he should have been satisfied with what he had. He should have been satisfied with original justice, with what God had already given to him. So when the devil willed that other thing, 
you understand? So here, he's got original justice. He sees something enticing that he wants. He's got to make a choice. And when he wills for that other thing, notice what he does. He wills inordinately to be like God. Why? Because in wanting that thing and going after it, which was not his in the first place, which was not given to him at all, he willed that thing by his own will, as subject to no one. Because God hadn't given it to him, yes? So he willed it by his own will. But as Anselm reminds us on page 178, it is the prerogative of God alone to will anything by his own will in such a way that it does not follow any higher will. Only God has the ability to will what he wills. Hence, the devil willed to be like God. In fact, Anselm claims the devil didn't just merely will to be like God, he willed to be even greater than God, in that he placed his own will above God's, by willing what God did not want him to have. What do we call this vice? Pride. And it's curious. Again, here's the thing. God doesn't offer you something, yes? Something that you really want. And you've got two options, right? You've got, you've got well, maybe you've got three, okay? Here's one option. Be satisfied with what you have, yes? And recognize that God has given you what you need. Here's the second thing. Well, no, God, I really need this, right? You pray for it. Yes, you ask for it. You knock. You seek. But what's the third option? You take it. Yeah. And notice when you do that, yes? When you reach out and take what's not been given to you, particularly by God, yes? Then you have to give up the one thing that's tying you to God, yes? Which is that trust, that fidelity. And that's what original justice is, that trust and fidelity in God. He can't have both, yes? But notice, he doesn't even get the good thing that he wanted. Why is that? It wasn't meant for him. So he not only lost by giving up original justice, but he didn't even get the good that he wanted because it wasn't his to take. Maybe God would have given it to him later. Who knows? Do you understand? As I mentioned last time, I think this is the same kind of problem that we see in the garden, yes? Who knows that if they had waited, God might have given them that apple. Oh, and the other one. <laughs> Remember the other one? Like, you just have to wonder, okay? Just if you're thinking like a human being here for a moment, right? Not like God. Like, why did they go after that tree and not the tree of eternal life first? Come on! Knowledge of good and evil? Seriously? Eternal life? Knowledge of good and evil? Come on! Huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they were philosophers. Oh, man. And we messed up on both sides, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. So, so again, who knows? They, they, they wanted this great good. They see it's, it's a good. And again, it probably was a good. Yeah? It probably was a good. In fact, Anselm, again, is of the, of, of the opinion that anything that the will is directed towards, right, which is why he calls it inordinate, right, when you do it wrong, anything that the will is directed towards 
is a seeking of a good. But it's sinful if it's a disordered, right? If you seeing the wrong good at the wrong time with the wrong person for the wrong reasons, right? Hmm? Yes, that's the trick. That's the hard part. Which is why, go back to premise three of the argument. We have to be able to rank goods. We have to, right? That is part of our nature, to be able to know what the good is and to be able to rank them. To be able to know which ones are the better ones, which ones are the eternal ones, let's say, versus the temporal ones, the ones that we just don't need. The ones that we can have versus the ones that can be taken away from us against our will. Yes? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Just because it sounds good. Yeah? I mean, seriously. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Don't know, like, here's the thing. Don't know what you've lost, right? Until it's gone. Yeah. And so, so here's one more question, right? And he gets to this at the end, or not one more question, one more circumstance. And he's going to try to answer this later on. It's like, okay, uh, why didn't God just sort of say, oh, okay, fine, you know, um, here, let me give it back to you. Why didn't he do that? Huh? On whose part? Satan's, okay? But, but more specifically, like, like, yes, right? Like, do you think he'd really want it back? That, that's, that's the worry. You know, we screw up and we want it back, yes? You know, I, I want second, third, fourth, fifth, a thousand, two hundred thousand chances. That's what I want. Yes? And if you see something that you want and receiving the goodwill back again denies you that, then taking the goodwill back is restricted to you. Yeah. At least that's how it appears. At least that's how it appears. Yeah. Desiring to be human. No, I don't think so. I mean, that's, that's just a bit of autobiography. But there are apocryphal stories that one of the things that caused Satan to fall, yes, to turn against God, is the presentation of the incarnation. Yes, that God, the second person of the Trinity, is united with a human nature, the elevation of the human being. Right? So when Jesus comes... Right? We'll talk a little bit more about this next time. When Jesus comes, what does he show us? This is what I think of human nature. This, this is what it's like. I've united my, my nature to it. Again, apocryphal story. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I mean, definitely, roaming the earth and patrolling it, yes? Seeking to destroy those goods, taking with him as many people as he can, yeah. All right. Here's another one. Here's another interesting thing that I've heard. Not just the issue of human nature, but here's something that we can do, by the way, that angels can't. Have you thought about this? Here's something that we can do that angels can't. We can participate in the act of creation, the act of creation. We can participate in it, right? Procreation. 
We can make babies. Angels can't get together and make little angel babies. There are no angel babies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No. <laughs> there are no, like, they can't do that. They cannot reproduce. But we can. That's pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> it is. You know? Who knows? Again, another apocryphal observation, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. No, yeah. There, it's, 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 I wouldn't put anything past him. Yeah, I wouldn't put anything past him. You put anything, if you put anything past Satan, woe to you, yes? Because you find yourself on the dung heap, right? Scraping your sores with a pot sherd, and your wife is going to come to you and say, do you still hold on to your innocence? <laughs> Curse God and die. Right? You thought that the trials before were bad. Wait a minute, like, you know, maybe not everyone here is married. Yes? You thought the trials before were bad, right? Your spouse comes to you, right? The one flesh union, yes? In the beginning, this was not so, yeah? She, she comes to you and she finishes the job. Yeah, don't, I, put, don't, I wouldn't put anything past him. Whatever works, yes? Whatever works, whatever twisting, remember to, like, whatever twisting of the truth is necessary to get you to turn. But again, it's a will. Here's the thing. He cannot overcome your will. He can't. You have to give it to him. He cannot overcome your will. He's not allowed to do anything that God doesn't let him. Or that you don't let him. Yeah, yeah. We, we've already gone there. <laughs> yeah. What I think about when I'm reading this proof is yeah. the idea of you know logic itself as a method or a system. And so I was wondering if anybody addresses the question of what are the limit limits of logic, or if that's No, I, th- I think it's a very good question, though. I mean, because Anselm is kind of doing... I mean, if it works, yes? He's doing an amazing thing. Uh, if, if anything, just by, the mean, by means of language alone to get us to be, recognize something that we just didn't notice before, possibly. Um, so in this tradition, in particular, this, this early medieval tradition, um, the laws of logic were seen to be uh, part and parcel of the organization of the divine mind. So logic is in nature. Okay? So, so for example, the principle of non-contradiction. Right? The principle of non-contradiction says that something can't both be and not be at the same time in the same respect. Right? That principle is built... Even, even the squirrels must obey it. Right? <laughs> it. They don't know it, but they must obey it. But we have the ability to recognize it and how it organizes being. But because we are also limited with regard to understanding existence, we're limited with regard to knowing exactly what are the extents and limits of logic. Yeah. And there are some things, presumably, 
that are um, rational. So we need to be able to discern the difference between what is rational, right, what is uh, uh, intelligible, versus what can be proven by means of our uh, sensory, uh, logical experience of the world. And they overlap, but they're not what we call coextensive. There seem to be lots of truths about God. Like that God is triune, that we just can't prove. Well, we can make sense of it, we can understand it, we can try to fit that in with our you know, interpretation of the Bible and the various principles that are involved there, but like now prove that God is you know, three persons in one. That becomes, that's beyond us. Yes. Does that answer it a little bit? I mean, the same thing with numbers. Like, why is 2 plus 2, 4? Why is that necessarily true? Because God is always thinking that. Now, if you're a Platonist of this sort, you know, God is constantly affirming the laws of mathematics and reason. So notice the implication. Sorry, I'll get you. The implication is that there is nothing that if we use right reason, right, we can prove false things, yes? But there's nothing, according to this tradition anyway, that when we use right reason, will not lead us to the truth. It's a tall order, it seems, right? But that's, that's how they viewed it. Because God is truth. Right? If God is truth, then, then any time we confront the truth, we confront God. We might not know it. Just like if you met Cassius Clay, right? You might not know known he was Muhammad Ali or vice versa. Versa, right? It's this problem of opacity, right? You might not know, but but you're there. This is why C.S. Lewis tells us in the last battle, uh, when the young man finds himself in Narnia, um, you know, he's like, you know, I've always I've worshipped Tosh my whole life. I've worshipped Tosh my whole life, and I, I don't belong here. I, I don't know why I'm here. And Aslan comes to him and he says. Insofar as you've been seeking the truth, you've been seeking after me. So, God himself says logic is really important, Mm -hmm. but it's not enough. No, definitely not enough. It's who I am, but that's not enough. We need logic, logos, personified. We need it in flesh. So it's not enough to believe the precepts and arguments. Right, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What he said. (laughs) But it's interesting confluence of that in John chapter one, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, he takes it a few layers deeper. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, God uttering himself, and then through that utterance, 
He makes everything. Yeah. So the issue is, what is such that he is not? Right? Cool. So, let's talk a little bit more about this. We've got a few moments. Let's just tie it up. Again, after the fall, we want to remember Satan and the demons, um, they lost something. They made this choice. As a reward to the good angels who persevered, God granted them security in their natural possession of justice, Anselm contends. So they were elevated in their status briefly. Now they're not able to sin by their own merits. Okay? So he preserved the ability for them to retain their original justice. Similarly, the evil angels, they not only lost the goods that they were given, that they had given away, but they obviously didn't obtain whatever it was that they were seeking, which induced them to denounce justice in the first place. And the question arises for him, and it's at the end of the dialogue, um, why? Uh, Why wouldn't God just give it back to them? And it's a real sort of nail-biter in one respect. The issue is, you know, couldn't they have been given a second chance like humanity? But again, part of it has to do with the issue of ignorance. Part of it. They knew exactly what they were getting into. What more knowledge could we have given them, Anselm wonders, such that they wouldn't make the choice again? What else could we have told them? They knew what they were getting into. They knew that giving up original justice was going to have these deleterious effects. What could we have said to them to say, no, hold on? Nothing other than just don't do that. (laughs) Just stop what you're doing. To try to compel them to not do this. And so, even if God wanted to give it back to them, Anselm worries, they might not receive it. Again, how could we change their situation? And so what's involved here, he's going to point out? An absolute free choice of the will. And what makes us make free choices? We do. And you're going to see at the end, if you, if you want to take a look at the text, right? It's really cool near the end of the dialogue. You know, he and, and his, the student go back and forth. And the student just wants to know, but why did he do it? He's like, because he just did. He's like, no, really, but why did he lose? Like, because he just did. But really, what caused him to do it? Nothing caused him to do it. Nothing. It was his own will. His will was his own efficient cause, he says. Because if you come up with any other explanation, do you understand? Anything that you can pin down, God didn't give him something, uh, uh, he didn't have right judgment, uh, you know, he, something caused him to do it, then you take responsibility away from him. But he was fully responsible, according to Anselm. So thank you for sticking around, right? We're, we're kind of like on that time again. What we want to do for next time, I want to talk a little bit about the, 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 the middle part of that dialogue, right? Since we didn't really talk a lot about that, what he thinks evil is, and then how that pertains to this issue of justice. Because that issue of justice and evil, getting clear on those things... I hope we at least recognize that that is kind of connected with the concept of the Incarnation. Why did God become man? What did God come to remedy? Yes, this divine rescue mission that we see throughout salvation history. Why? Yes, what does it reveal? 
And so to understand this issue of justice, right, and where we're at and the choices that we make and why God needed to come and become human to do it, at least in Anselm's analysis, right? Could God have snapped his fingers? He thinks maybe not, right? It sounds like God could, but maybe not, given the circumstances, according to his argument. So we want to look at that and, you know, what this issue of justice in comparison with mercy, you know, mandates. So I want to thank all of you, honestly, for being here. I really appreciate your attention. I prefer to answer questions, so I'm sorry I really didn't go over everything we wanted to go over, but this is much more important to me, yeah, to talk to you guys and learn from you. You know, I'm still trying to wrestle, I think, with Mr. Cotton's question on epistemology, right? There's some worries that are going on there uh, with Anselm. But, uh, you know, it causes me to think, and I go back to the table and try to respond to these things. And so I really, really appreciate your attention here. So thank you so much.